hope you're doing well. You are listening to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. We are broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus on the unceded ancestral and traditional Musqueam territory in Vancouver. I am your host, Sarah Unju. We have a wonderful show you for you today. We have a special episode because it is Fun Drive here at CITR. What is Fun Drive? Fun Drive is the one week a year, just one week through in the whole 52 weeks of the year where we ask for your donation so that we can keep giving you the local, the alternative, the quality content that we give you. Why do we need your donations? Because, well, first of all, one of the reasons is that the studios are free to use for members, so there's a lot of wear and tear with the equipment, and we need quality equipment for this quality shows. I mean, these shows, grammar, that we do. So your donations could help us with that. Your donations could help us with programming. It's a lot of stuff. Also, not to mention, you can get some cool-ass swag by donating. Okay, let me read out what you can get because they are amazing. So, for $30 or $5 a month, you can get a customized CITR and Discord or FunDrive candy hearts or a Bowen patch. For $60 or $10 a month, you can get cozy socks and customized CITR Discord or FunDrive candy hearts and a Bowen patch. For $101.9, <laughs> which is $101.09, or $15 a month, you can get a CITR tea towel with on-air song dedication, nice, um, on Valentine's Day, that's even better, um, and all of the other items. For $175 or $20 a month, you can get the Lost Months Discorder Deluxe Special Edition with all of the above mentioned, all of the things mentioned before. For $250 or $25 a month, you can get a framed cover of Discorder magazine with everything that I mentioned before. For $500 or $35 a month, you can get Discorder art feature puzzle and everything I mentioned before. And finally, for $1,000 or $50 a month, you can host a show on CITI 101.9 FM and you get a recognition on our donor wall, donor, I'm sorry, on our donor wall and everything else I mentioned. So... Why wouldn't you want your own radio show? Come on, do it. <laughs> you can donate at citr.ca slash forward slash donate. citr.ca forward slash donate. Make sure you check it out. It's really easy to donate. You can donate $5 or $1,000. It's up to you. Every little cent counts. There's no such thing as a like a little donation. No such thing as not enough. We love every single cent that you give us because we will use it we will cherish it and thank you so much so let's start our show we're starting out with a shout out so our shout out goes to the museum of anthropologies a future for memory a future for memory art and life after the great east Jap japan earthquake will be held between February 11th, so tomorrow, and September 5th. The exhibition will open in time to commemorate the 10th anniversary of the 2011 triple disaster that saw a 9.0 magnitude earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear meltdown that hit the eastern region of Japan. The lasting traumatic effects of natural disasters can oh, I can't speak disasters can be both visible and invisible. A future for memory looks at the long and challenging road to recovery through the cathartic lens of art. Art can be a crucial agent in revitalizing stricken communities, providing a potent opportunity for reflection and creating a shared sense of hope. So check it out, check out a future for memory at Museum of Anthropology. Um, we are going to have an interview uh, about, with, about it with the curator, Fuyubi, next week. Phoebe will be doing it, so make sure you tune in for that too. So, this week we have a review of I Swallowed a Ma Moon Made of Iron, interview with Jim Smith, the 
artistic director of Dance House, a review of Mansfield Park by UBC Opera, and a review of A Craigslist Cantata. I'm not going to hop in in between any of those. You're just going to listen to them with the ads and PSAs in between them. Please, before I go, I would like to remind you that it's fun drive and you should donate because don't let CITR be the one that got away. You gotta donate. You gotta show us some love. I mean, you don't have to, of course. We can't make you. But if you want to, we would appreciate it greatly. Even $2. Just like, instead of grabbing coffee at Starbucks this morning, how about you give those $4 to us? That would be wonderful so that we can keep giving you the content, giving you the local media that we do. Thank you so much. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our Fun Drive show. Um, It's Silvana once again with a review for you. I hope you are enjoying our show today. Um, Remember to donate. Our phone lights are open. And you can also donate online and support the arts report and the work that CRTR and Discorder do um, for our community. Today, I have a review for you uh, that was very special and very new to me. Um, It was called I Swallowed a Moon Made of Iron, which is a very interesting, very poetic name. It is actually the title of a poem by a Chinese poet, Xu Li Shi. I hope I pronounced um, the name right. And... It was a live performance by artist Nyo Kong Kie and he basically um, arranged the poems in what is called a song cycle. So it it used um, human voice, the piano, and also there were um, projected images that were also sometimes overlapped with um, uh, with the shot of the place he was at. And this video imagery created like the scene on on what the poems were about. So these poems um, by Xu Li Shi, they're very deep vignettes and very telling vignettes, emotional vignettes of what happened in Shenzhen, China, where Xu uh, toiled and worked in a factory. Um, as many people may know, um, Shenzhen um, is host of factories such as Foxconn, which is um, where Apple gets its products done. And this presentation was very reflective on the distance that we have between probably the objects of technology that we use every day and the lives of these workers that work with very little um, breaks with very arduous conditions. Um, They're usually, well, sometimes they are separated from their families for a long time. And definitely um, Xu Li Shi's poems are reflecting of his state of mind as the years go by. The different poems, um, of course, were (laughs) written, I guess, in in Mandarin Chinese. Um, However, well, I do not speak the language. So I, I was reading the the poems translated in the screen, um, which were embedded in different moments. Um, sometimes Nyo Kyungkye would like recite them or sing them as they appeared on the screen, and sometimes there would be melodical interludes or even moments of silence, and the poem would appear. So we would be engaged in very different, um, in very different mediums when it came to the poem itself, and. It was overall a very, very powerful performance. As I said before, it is a really um, tough topic. It is something that we don't really think about in our day to day, but it's something that is a very real reality that even though it seems so far away and we sometimes are so alienated from where our products come from, especially our phones that are this like new window to society. And today um, with COVID, we manage a lot of um, our economic and social relations through screens and through um, these sort of devices but we often forget who are the people that are behind the making of the products themselves um so we learn from Shu's perspective and he's like very profound poetry and meditations um his hopes his dreams his struggles we learn about his mom and how he misses her 
Um, and this scene is interposed by some images of domestic life. And that one was very powerful. The poem itself of I Swallowed a Moon Made of Iron really caused a big impression on me. In the poem right before I Swallowed a Moon Made of Iron, the poem said, oh, some a screw fell off the machine or, or something like this. And then he was like, a person fell. Um, so we we kind of like make this association of this person is like a screw of the whole um, machinery. But it's also sometimes treated as, as so um, replaceable and so insignificant. So it's a very like big meditation that opens up for the poem itself, the other poem. And this one, I actually took some pictures from it, from the translation, obviously. So I can share a little bit of the lines that it said. They go as follows. I swallowed a moon made of iron. They call it a screw. I swallowed this industrial wastewater, this order form for unemployment. Youth, baser than machines, died long ago. I swallowed haste, swallowed displacement, swallowed pedestrian bridges, swallowed a life overgrown with rust. I can swallow no more. Everything that I have swallowed now gushes from my throat and coats the ground of my homeland with a shameful poem. Um, so as we can appreciate, this poem really gives us a sense of despair and of how much the workers such as such as Shu like go through and went through. So this swallowing a moon I think it's just the immensity of the situation. How much he had to swallow is just like literally how much he had to endure every day. And he talks about a life that is rusty, a life that is taken away from so many other things, probably free time, probably companionship, the long hours are tiresome. And um, he feels like his youth is also gone just in the machines and toiling every day. He also mentions unemployment, so there's this tension with taking this very, very low-wage, work-intensive, um, what we call in my sociology class, triple Ds, which are dirty, demeaning, and dangerous jobs, um, which oftentimes are done in special economic zones um, or and in factories like Foxconn and others in um, Shenzhen. Um, so this one was really impactful for me. Apart from this poem, he also goes into um, themes like migrant workers and how many people aren't from Shenzhen, so they really left a very different life. And the ocean is juxtaposed to all this. There is also a, a very recurring motif, which is the cold, and he's mentioning of ice and the machine feeling cold. And in the video itself, we see how there are very small snowflakes um, going, um, going right as if they were being blown. And Nyo Konkye, um, meanwhile, interprets the poems and plays the piano. And he also moves around in the space. I must say that even though, I, I mean, I mentioned that some images are displayed and um, there is also this very interesting management of the light sometimes it moves to to lighter colors it also moves to warm sometimes when it comes to remembering um, but then it also turns really cold and this is all projected in the wall which is i think it is concrete it looked kind of like a parking lot <laughs> the space um even though it was well i'm not sure if it was a very like enclosed room but it kind of looked like it. We can only see the corner with the piano and just a little bit of the, of the rest of the wall. And of course, this setting just evokes the fact of being trapped. Um, it kind of looked um, sad, like prison-like even. And Nyokunke also moves around this space. He crawls um, from below the piano. He lays down on the floor, he looks at the ceiling, 
um, he lays in the wall and he really utilizes this space to communicate to communicate the feelings from Shu's poem. So and it get and it kept getting more intense, ever more intense, um, because I think the poems were set in chronological order. So the very last poem um, is the most morose. It's the most um, the darkest um, in terms of the lighting, in terms of the emotion. We can tell that Shu was exhausted. And this seems to be like the end of his life and he says that he can no longer go on. He is so tired and he says, after all is tidied, everyone will line up to leave and softly close the door for me. So he acknowledges um, how his role as a worker is transitory as it is for many others. And he eventually passes away the same year that he writes this poem, which is in 2014. So it was a very heartbreaking ending. But it was overall a great interpretation, a great performance. I had never really seen a song cycle. And I really liked it. Uh, the interpolation of the different mediums, the music, the lighting, as I said, it was really good. And it really made me reflect a lot on the topic. I also happen to recall um, how last term I took a sociology class in which we uh, we talked about Foxconn in one of the classes. Um, so it is something that we kind of know, at least as students. As students, we, we are aware that the conditions of workers are often so, so bad. And we are so, as we said, alienated from these lives. So um, performances, I like the one I could see by Nyokonkie, I think are really, really important and really should be highlighted. I will finally say that this, this performance, this song cycle of I Swallowed a Moon Made of Iron was brought to me, to my attention by um, the Push Festival of the Arts. Um, so I believe that Nyokonkia is based in Toronto and now that like, I mean, events are online, I had the pleasure of attending virtually to the live session and it was amazing. I hope to, um, keep seeing more of Nyokonkia and I definitely looked up more about, um, Shulingshi. <laughs> I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. And... Also, I encourage you all to think about these sort of relations and these sort of connections that we have to lives that are in a totally different side of the world. And they probably go through very, very different conditions to the ones we do here in the West Coast and in Canada. Last but not least, I just want to remind you that it is Fun Drive and if you want to donate, um, our, our lines are open, support the Arts Report and CITR and the work that is fantastic and builds community. I hope you can donate some. Bye! Thousands of opinions are at our fingertips. But are all opinions informed? Does your information have a source? Is your social feed based on fact? Only facts can uncover the truth. Professional journalists are committed to balanced and non-partisan reporting, to independent commentary. They cut through the spin to give you the information and perspective you need. Journalism is essential to democracy, a watchdog over the powerful, an independent voice. Journalism is more important than ever. What's happening? I'm Owen Wilson, and I'm here to talk to you about a subject that's near and dear to my heart. The CITR and Discorder Fun Drive. CITR's great. So is Discorder. I don't know what to expect. I gotta be honest. I come in, it's like a little like I'm trying to get my bearings. There's cartoons, your mom. Radio's cool. So do the right thing. Donate now to the, the CITR and Discorder Fund Drive. You'd be doing me a solid. Go to citr.ca slash donate. Come on. Come on. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm with Jim Smith, who is the Artistic and Executive Director of Dance House, a subscription series of large-scale dance presentations here at the Vancouver Playhouse. 
and we will be talking about Digidance. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. How about yourself? I'm good, thank you. So when you co-founded Dance House, I feel like a pandemic was the least of your concerns and you wouldn't have expected it. So (laughs) this adaptation into the digital world of performance with Digidance is, I feel like, really exciting and it sounds really interesting. So I'm really excited to learn more about it. But before we really get into the questions, would you like to start us off with telling us what Digidance is? Sure. Um, you know, it, it, it's true. What you just said is bang on. Never would I have thought that we, you know, that I'd be living through a pandemic, that any of us would be living through a <laughs> pandemic. So yes, completely caught off guard on that one. It's true. And then um, uh, DigiDance uh, really is, you know, uh, the pandemic was a catalyst and, you know, necessity being the mother of invention, there was this need to respond to the situation. And um, certainly the, you know, what, what was happening a lot during that period of the lockdown, when it was all about, you know, everybody had to shut down or cancel performances, mm-hmm. there was a lot of conversation going on inside of the sector, the community, or, the, you know, the industry, the industry aspect of, you know, making this work happen. And so a lot of conversations were firing very quickly about, you you know, how, you know, how are you responding, you know, to this notion of cancellation, but also what are we, what are we going to do, right? <laughs> you know, how are we yeah. going to prepare for what is turning out to be a much longer uh, period of lockdown, certainly a period of being socially distanced than I think we originally anticipated. So, I, I mean, very quickly, the, it, it really was sort of the, the meeting of the minds, I would say, of, um, you know, our national colleagues. So in uh, Montreal, Don Stance, in Ottawa, the National Arts Centre, the dance program in particular, at Harbourfront, again, the dance programming wing at Harbourfront. And we we just fell into conversations about, you know, what, what let's collaborate, let's try to face this challenge together. And so, you know, every week, every Friday, we've gotten together and had a conversation about trying to, how do we piece this together? So that's, a, you know, a long way of saying that the um, uh, DigiDance really emerged out of, you know, a national uh, network for dance. Uh, you know, we, we even before the pandemic, we were always working together because when it came to landing a company in Canada or in North America, we were always in conversation about, you know, how can we route a schedule for them and work collaboratively to give, you know, a tour to a company and to the work that they're bringing, you know, to our local community. So it was very easy to sort of follow those conversations and then start talking about, you know, is there an opportunity here to sort of shine a light on this national network? And then really to turn to our audiences or our local communities and say, you know, you're actually part of a national community for dance. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yes, we all have this um, very local role that we, you know, we see, feel, touch uh, when we can and we're not looking through a pandemic. But, you know, uh, an opportunity to sort of zoom out and sort of see, you know, this bigger piece of um, infrastructure or architecture that's, you know, trying to work together to try and... Uh, you know, support the form of dance and develop an audience for dance and make sure that there's, you know, informed dialogue and, you know, curiosity about the body as a form of expression. Sorry, that's that's a long answer, but I think it I think it captures, you know, much of the meatiness of sort of what's happened and yeah. uh, where these dance came from. Yeah, so if I understand correctly, you were already in conversation with these three other um, places, the Ottawa, Montreal, and Toronto, and so DigiDance kind of formed through those conversations you didn't reach out to each other for digidance uh, no it was I, i'd say it was really us uh, coming together and trying mm-hmm. to ponder you know what you know we ran a number of experiments in the in the fall we kept talking about you know what opportunities sort of were apparent from us working together uh and and, and it was only opportunities that you know nowhere did did we feel like there was an obstacle or a block so it, uh, I really would say it was an emerging conversation, an idea that only it snowballed. It only got bigger and better the more we talked about it mm-hmm. and the more it expanded. Okay. And what role does Dance House play in DigiDance? So, uh, so you know, Dance House is one of these four uh, partners. So, you know, we, again, we, we, we all come to the table with programming ideas because we're collectively programming. So that's mm-hmm. a piece of what we certainly bring. Uh, you know, we are all trying to service our local communities, which is, you know, so Vancouver has an existing audience and certainly we're reaching out to that audience and, you know, ideally trying to pick up a couple of, um, you know, uh, new audience members in light of the fact that with uh, digital dance not uh, requiring you to be in Vancouver or in Toronto or Montreal and Ottawa mm-hmm. with a ticket on the night of the show, you can, you know, actually reach out to people uh, digitally. So it allows for, you know, much more regional reach um, which is very satisfying because, again, it is part of the opportunity of how this could expand. And, uh, 
And you know what I what I like to think again the you know the role of dance house even in the context of Vancouver is to try and bring sort of an international context to you know all of the remarkable presenting work that is going on yeah. already in uh, Vancouver of local companies of you know other other Canadian companies so so likewise bringing in digital content to sort of wrap around you know other communities that you know have, you know ideally have a local scene and maybe connected up to a a regional network but now you know something like the Paris Opera Ballet for example you know that that they don't tour. It's hard to get them into yeah. anyone's the theater. So just a chance to sort of have like, again, this sort of national conversation um, and share in some of these, you know, international experiences, but again, very much have the lens of a Canadian, you know, signature, a Canadian mm-hmm. perspective on them. Uh, so certainly putting the, the Canadian experience on the international stage. Okay, wonderful. And so you mentioning Paris Opera Ballet is a great segue into my next question, which is about Body and Soul. And so um, for everyone listening, Body and Soul is choreographed by our very own Canadian Crystal Pite. And it was performed by the Paris Opera Ballet um, back in 2019, if I'm not mistaken. And so DigiDance will kick off with Body and Soul. Um, It'll be streaming from February 17th until the 23rd. And so my question to you is, did this performance for DigiDance got re-recorded or is it the performance from back in November? 2019 so it is, um, it's a the performance from back in november so it was actually captured uh, to use you know that lingo uh with a number of cameras uh during a live performance and then was subsequently edited so you know even before there was a pandemic even before there was a digi dance series uh the work was already being uh documented mm-hmm. and put into uh you know this digital format again it's interesting to note that it is a capture of a of a performance a stage performance so it's you know, very much is uh, trying to, you know, give the experience what it's like to sit in the Paris Opera Ballet, which is, you know, Palais uh, Grenier, which is this remarkable venue and has all these, you know, years of history and tradition that it's just steeped in. And uh, to be able to, again, you know, witness a performance um, that is choreographed by a Canadian choreographer, but also the, the creative team was all Canadian, actually all from Vancouver, with the exception of one, the lighting designer, Tom Visser, who's actually based in... Um, uh, the UK and originally from Ireland. Um, but uh, yeah, no, a very Canadian opportunity to uh, try and bring an experience um, that, uh, you know, it w- wouldn't be possible were it not for the opportunity of uh, digital transmission. Yeah, exactly. And so I'm not sure if you would really have the answer to this question, but I still want to ask, um, will all the stream performances within DigiDance be archived recordings, or do you think there will be any new recordings that will come in? Uh, at this point in time, we're primarily focusing on things that have been captured. Um, mm-hmm. That is, a, they exist at this point in time. And the, the reason, again, this was part of, you know, I alluded to some of the experimentation that happened in the fall. You know, there, there were sort of, you know, there are, because it still probably goes on in the debate, two big school of, schools of thought. You know, should you try to capture and broadcast, stream, you know, something that is happening live, that is, you know, somewhere at this very moment in real time, there's a body in a theater or a studio that is actually... Uh, doing this work or uh you know alternatively would you rather have the convenience of having you know um you know seven day window to you know view something that has been recorded recognizing that you know it gives you a lot more flexibility um part of what i'd say our experience was that um the value of real time didn't seem to be as important Mm -hmm. um as we may have thought originally so uh capturing you know work that's been captured uh, you know, allows for that greater flexibility. It also takes a fair bit of risk artistically out of the process. If, um, you know, if you are doing something that's live, you know, you don't have an opportunity to edit or to, uh, you know, make, make sure from, a, you know, even from a capture point of view that, you know, the camera angle, that you have, if you have a couple of choices, which one you've actually used. So uh, working with uh, a material that's already been locked down just allows for a couple of, you know, interventions from editing and viewing and artistic comment to, um you know, ensure that the experience is as close to, again, what the artist's intention of mm-hmm. what their work should be. Yeah. And so how are you guys deciding what's going to be streamed within DigiDance? How is that decision being made? So again, on these weekly conversations, um, <laughs> <laughs> we uh, set for ourselves from a programming perspective to try and uh, focus very much on trying to capture the Canadian scene. 
And again, part of this was baked into the idea that we are part of this national community. You know, we're a national network of presenters where, you know, we want to underline this notion of a national audience. So, you know, how could we, how could we uh, focus on programming that would be relevant, meaningful, um, you know, allow uh, all, you know, all of Canada mm -hmm. to sort of see itself in terms of the offering. So again, we did a little bit of experimenting in the, in the fall, but certainly, um, you know, th this first work is viewed as, uh, again, putting a, a focus on a Canadian, a group of Canadian creators, but also how they're projecting the Canadian experience out internationally. Uh, some of the, I don't want to give away all of the details yeah. of programming, <laughs> but I can sort of say that, you know, some of the opportunities that we've seen, um, you know, embedded in this, uh, you know, uh, enterprise, this proposition is the fact that we can, you know, turn to some iconic Canadian work that actually isn't performed anymore. So, you know, without turning anything to a, a history lesson, but, you know, the opportunity is that, you know, work that has, that's from the past, that is an important part of the Canadian canon that has probably completely influenced, you know, the, the current generation of dance makers. Is there a way to tap into some of that work, again, share it with a national audience to help, you know, give them some reference points in which to, you know, view dance or, you know, watch its evolution that's development. Yeah, wonderful. And so um, going back to Body and Soul, Canadian audiences will be the first international audience to see this piece performed by the Paris Opera Ballet. Did you see it um, in person when it was I, performed? I did. Yes, I was. Uh, again, this is part of the, you know, how the world is sort of, you know, turned. But um, uh, yes, I have an association with Crystal Pite. And so I was uh, very much in the audience to see, you know, how this work was going to work out. And it was you know, a fantastic experience. <laughs> and the work was very uh, much received. It is a, a full length work work so it's her you know a first full-length work um at the paris opera ballet which was you know commissioned on the occasion of the um, uh, paris opera's 350th anniversary so again a, a very remarkable canadian story that this very french institution has you know commissioned from you know a canadian female on the west coast and anglophone like all sorts of really interesting um, implications and ideas uh sort of come out of of, of that work um, and, and again, her Canadian team also just sort of, you know, again, puts, you know, watching a group of individual individuals sort of marshal, you know, forces that are, you know, almost warrior-like in their scale and their scope. It, uh, you know, it, it, it is very much a Canadian experience to sort of, you know, as you, as you alluded to, you know, kind of you know, hold hand on heart without getting too patriotic. But, you know, recognize that, you know, Crystal Pike, there we go. There's a Canadian who, you know, is out reflecting the Canadian experience on a, you know, truly international stage. Yeah, it's really exciting. Also, you talk about it so passionately i just i wish i was there watching it in person but at least i will be there you'll see yes <laughs> i'll see it with digitance thank thanks to digitance <laughs> and so um february will also feature the return of dance houses speaking of dance event series um i believe it'll be on the 26th and it'll be online have you ever done an online speaking of dance event before so this is the second iteration, and again, you know, how the world has changed. So uh, speaking of dance prior to the pandemic had a very local context and a very local feeling. We, you know, um, conceived of this speaker series uh, as really trying to get a very local conversation going on by tapping into the, you know, the, the, you know, the creative artists that live here, the dance writers that live here, be they critics or be they uh, academics. Uh, local aspects of the community of trying to, you know, look at the art world and put it in our, a very local context, recognizing that, you know, much of we try and program is sort of, you know, in, a, in, a, in an international realm. Um, with the pandemic, the, the opposite has happened. We've mm -hmm. actually, this will be the second in the edition uh, since we've gone uh, online. Um, but the, the conversations are actually much more international and um, all of the all of the artists that we've been reaching out to are all uh, alumni of the dance house stage is the way we've thought about it. That is, you know, artists who have traveled to Vancouver and put their work on the Vancouver stage. So we like to think that we still maintain, you know, some of the connection with the local community and that everyone who uh, participates will have come to Vancouver and will have had some memory or some experience with Vancouver. But because it is online, it also allows us to try and, you know, put all of these issues in a much bigger scale or in a much bigger context. So, again, trying to do both things at the same time of, you know, open up the conversation while at the same time still and keep this connection with a very local community. Yeah, that's it's 
really exciting to be able to have this international connection too because I was gonna uh, mention the same thing I checked out um, the one for the 26th and I saw that um, I don't remember the names unfortunately but from Bangara Dance and Grupa Corpo I believe that's like Stephen Page right? from Sarah Dance and then uh, Rodrigo Petneris from Grupo Corpo. Yes, I feel like it's a wonderful opportunity to be able to hear them and, you know, talk to them. And that wouldn't be possible, maybe, probably, if this was done in person right now. That's it. And, of course, also in that program, I should mention, is Louisa Cavalier, who's a Montreal, you know, dance um, superstar. Uh, so again, we'll still have this Canadian, you know, context or this Canadian uh, perspective also being part of that conversation. So yes. There's still one more to be uh, uh, confirmed. One more uh, speaker. Again, somebody who's from the alumni, but I don't think they're confirmed yet, so I can't say their name out Okay, that. yeah. <laughs> well, everyone can check on their own. It'll yeah, be on you the want to keep the drama and suspense, yes. you know, keep it alive. <laughs> exactly. Do you think you will continue to have these series online or go back to doing them in person when the restrictions are lifted? But so I so here a couple of thoughts and I'm gonna take a bit of time to answer the question. So forgive me, but I you know, they're they're recognizing that the world will not go back to the way it was. I, you know, I don't think we're gonna flick a switch and it'll look like it did, you know, the day before. Yeah. <laughs> March thirteenth or March twelfth, whichever day you want to use as, you know, the beginning of how it all changed. But um, you know, I do think that you know, as humans, we love to be together, we love to have shared experiences. Yeah. Uh, certainly, you know, presenting dance or presenting the performing arts is all about convening people and uh, feeding that curiosity and that need. So, I'm, you know, I'm myself, I'm pretty confident that we will all get back to the theater at some point in time. Uh, I think that there's probably a bit of a renaissance for the performing arts uh, after after we get on the other side yeah. of the <laughs> currently the nightmare we're currently living through. You know, I remind myself and my colleagues that this is not the first pandemic that the performing arts have had to struggle through. And, you know, they, they were just fine in the past and I expect they'll be just fine in the future. So I think the future of the performing arts is quite rosy. Now back more on point to your question, which is like, <laughs> again, we, um, with my national colleagues, and again, this was uh, the topic that we had just on last week's conversation was, uh, you know, the legacy that we see out of this project is to definitely carry on offering at least a couple of offerings every uh, season. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, to hopefully carry on this conversation of, you know, a national audience, uh, to continue to try and serve a broader, wider uh, reaching community. Um, and, and again, also uh, from a programming perspective, to bring things to the conversation, to our audiences that we, that we couldn't do on stage. Again, we couldn't, we couldn't hire a theater and land the Paris Opera Ballet in Vancouver. It just would never, I know, it's hard to imagine. That would never happen, never say never. Um, uh, so there are programming opportunities that we, you know, we want to hang on to in light of the fact that now we've sort of you know, cracked this and that as it were. Mm-hmm. Yes. And before we go, I want to ask, how can people keep posted about Dance House and DJ Dance? Ah, that's easy stuff. So um, our website, which is sort of, you know, the funnel to all things Dance House, and that's dancehouse.ca. And I encourage everybody to go there, you know, on a regular basis. <laughs> there's always changes and there's always something going on. Uh, but all the details are there. And then, of course, uh, social media. There's, um, we, you know, and I mentioned social media just because it's not only a place to find information about dance house but it's also a place to engage so it's also a chance a place where we can hear uh from you know the, those the community those in the community that we're trying to to include and trying to service so uh you know i encourage everyone to uh you know find us on uh, social media and tell us what you think yes wonderful well thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk with me my pleasure thank you sarah When you purchase the latest TV, tablet, or smartphone, don't forget to do the right thing with your old ones. Recycle them. The Consumer Electronics Association and its members are making recycling your old devices as easy as buying new ones. Just go to greenergadgets.org, type in your zip code, and you'll instantly find the recycling location closest to your home. You'll also find recycling tips, like asking the store where you buy your new TV if they'll haul away your old one. Don't let your old tech tools clog your local landfill. Just visit greenergadgets.org. Hey there, this is Aaron from the Flower Power Hour. This week is Fun Drive here at CITR, the one time each year where we ask for your support to help us keep local, independent, and alternative voices on the air. For me, CITR is the place for underground arts in Vancouver. When I came to UBC a few years back, I couldn't have asked to be accepted and welcomed into a community like CITR has done for me. 
The difference between CITR and other arts organizations is the emphasis on remaining independent and local. If you're an underrepresented voice in Vancouver, you have a home at CITR. If you are in a position to contribute, please visit citr.ca slash donate to donate and help us remain the most reliable station to discover new local music. Thank you. My name is Nico Martin Mechino, and today I'll be reviewing the UBC Opera's performance of Mansfield Park. Now, before I begin, I would like to reiterate that we are doing at CITR the fun drive this week. Now, the fun drive is really important for us to be able to get donations so we can sustain this radio and keep it as fruitful and resourceful as we have been, and hopefully we can grow in the future with your support. So please... I ask you to participate and donate in uh, small amounts, large amounts, whatever you feel comfortable with, but we greatly appreciate it. And today I have a very special guest, a friend of mine who actually studied in theater is here today and she's going to help me out review this performance by UBC's Opera of Manfield Park. Just to begin, I have a couple notes. Now, the chamber opera was performed in two acts. The composer was Alcidere Middleton. The libretto was based on the 1814 novel of the same name by Jane Austen. The conductor was David Agler, and the director was Nancy Hermiston. Now, on the Chance Center for Performing Arts website, there's a small little synopsis about the play, which is commissioned by Heritage Opera barely a decade ago. Jonathan Dove's chamber opera Mansfield Park is a delicate blend of the past and present, both historical and contemporary in nature. The plot and setting, taken directly from Jane Austen, root the opera in the early 19th century. The music, reminiscent of the renowned contemporary composers Brynden Glass, both honors these origins and adds an unmistakable flair to the 21st century. This combination creates a truly inspiring musical and dramatic piece that allows the audience to experience Mansfield Park as never before. And now I have the pleasure of introducing my friend, Mariel Calvo. How are you doing, Mariel? I'm good, Nico. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Why don't you tell us a little about yourself, Mariel? My name is Mariel Calvo. Uh, I recently graduated from Queen's University. Um, So back in April 2020, I just graduated and I studied drama. Um, So yeah, I spent four years just studying theater and all aspects of it. Oh, very cool. So you're a theatric. Uh, Yeah, I'm very theatrical, (laughs) I guess some could say. Not actually, but... (laughs) I see that as a virtue, so that's very cool. Now, uh, did you know a little bit about Mansfield Park going into this? Uh, yes, I did. I knew the I knew the story of Mansfield Park. I knew a lot about Jane Austen specifically um, going into watching this opera. So I knew kind of her background and um, how she came to write this story and how it kind of reflected a lot of her life, actually. Wow, very interesting. That's, uh, that definitely must have played as a benefit to watching the opera because I know for myself, not knowing anything about Mansfield Park or much about Jane Austen, you know, I was kind of lost throughout the opera just because of the nature of the opera in itself. Um, so what did you overall think of the opera? And we'll get into the details in a bit here, but overall, what did you think? I thought the opera was... a it was an interesting choice, uh, to be honest. Um, I thought it was good Jane Austen story to adapt. I thought it, it fit well into the opera realm, uh, for sure. But I, I kind of was struck by the end. I kept wondering why here, why now? Uh, you know, why this story? Why is this important to tell? Um, I didn't quite grasp that after watching the show. I didn't, I was still kind of lost and, Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if that was a direct result of the production or <laughs> or just, you know, I'm, I'm as many people are nowadays, I think a lot about politics and how that is reflected in our arts and how does this story hmm. reflect um, our our world right now. Interesting. Yeah, that's uh, definitely bringing in more of a performance studies per- perspective into the opera that we watch, which is definitely a good topic to bring up. And uh, I know for myself, it, I was, like I said, I kind of got just got lost in the story in itself because it was kind of hard to follow and a little boring at sometimes. I might also have been my own fault, 
but uh, it was a little hard to to stay involved in it and engaged and the musicality of the opera itself for my own preference wasn't something that really encaptivated me which is uh, for me usually that's the strongest suit for operas in in my engagement you know it's the music that really just makes me feel spellbounded and engaged with the story so I know for me that was one thing that kind of sent me back on this particular performance but you do bring up a good question on why now and why was it why were they performing it and I do know I believe that uh, this opera was actually created only a mere 10 years ago but um, since you are a theater student I'm sure you got educated on the staging and everything so what do you think of the staging and, and wardrobe? Yeah I thought the staging was very Oh man, I don't want to be mean. <laughs> hey, no, it's okay. It's okay. We're here to to give a, an honest review, so we appreciate the honesty. The staging was very basic. It was very much like this is the setting, and this is what you know to give the idea of mm-hmm. um, where these people are, and which is Mansfield Park, which is like a very you know fancy estate in England. Um, it's also, I mean, you know, in my mind, I think opera is this very grand thing and I have seen very um, intricate and uh, pretty crazy designs on the operatic stage before but due to the constrictions of um, COVID-19 and them all having to be at least like you know two meters apart on stage there wasn't a lot of movement and there wasn't a lot of I felt the set was just kind of there as more of a backdrop. Yeah I remember there was uh, something you said park and bark when we were watching it. Yeah, it was, it was that, very conducive to the park and bark, um, which is classic opera. Could you um, could you give us a little bit more of a definition of park and bark for myself? That was and that was something that I didn't know until you brought it up to me. So could you just give us a definition of that? Yeah, uh, the park and bark is essentially, um, you know, it's very common in 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 opera where the performer is asked to just kind of walk onto stage and park and to stand there and and bark will sing um and they don't move much and of course in this opera again a lot of movement wasn't possible because of the COVID-19 restrictions and having to maintain distancing which I completely understand but I don't even think the the staging the actual set allowed a lot of movement for the actors there wasn't a lot of interaction that could happen and a lot of playfulness that could happen on stage through this set um, I always like to think of stages and set designs as playgrounds for the performers, right? And that's what they're doing. That's what performers do on stage. They play with each other. That's, you know, they are in a play. They are in an opera. They are all acting. They're all performing. And that's what I always like to see. I want to see performers work with the stage and the stage work with them right back. And I thought this, it was lacking, it was for sure lacking in this performance. But I think a lot of it is due to COVID-19 and uh, them not even being able to perform as they normally would in the first place you know it's just another example of just how many obstacles this COVID restrictions has really given and I think you're right you know I think we really could feel that while we were watching it and um, but more than anything you know the actors you know I think they were more than happy to finally perform and remember I made that comment to you and they're kind of milking it when they were giving that intermission interview type of thing yeah absolutely well I think I mean any performer, I think, feels this where um, the audience is just such, so important. It's so important when you're on stage. You get so much energy from them. You get so many cues from them, whether something is funny, whether something is working or it's not working, or if something's landing, you know, if, if, it's, if you're conveying it properly, you know, and you get that, you get that sense from the audience. So with the audience not being there and it just being cameras and this, empty auditorium or essentially empty auditorium i imagine it being so different and so strange for those performers so it's it's totally like a, a huge challenge and kind of a curveball to learn okay we're performing in a new way right everything that they've learned up to this point of how to perform and how to get on stage and bring what they need to bring now it's it needs to be modified. It needs to be changed. They they have to sing with masks on. That alone is a huge challenge. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know... Um, that's, a, that's a good point that we should mention. This was performed, all the actors use masks, which in the other operas that I saw from the Vancouver Opera House, 
they did not use masks. And that was one thing that really surprised me was that all the students were using masks. And yeah, like you mentioned, that must have been quite annoying and yeah, so unnatural. Yeah, no, like I can barely walk down the street with a mask on without like huffing and puffing and just like <laughs> want, needing a break. So I can't even imagine <laughs> singing an aria <laughs> and like being on stage and staying in character with a mask on. Yeah, that's that's a huge obstruction right to their to their instruments so that's yeah it was definitely a challenge and but they all did very well you know considering it's taking that in stride and working with it um yeah i would agree working with these restrictions and and creating something despite them well uh that, i think that's our show we have run out of time i thank you so much mariel for coming oh thank you for having me <laughs> So that was Mariel Calvo, who came in as a special guest to help me review Mansfield Park by the UBC Opera. I thank you all for listening. And again, don't forget to donate for the fun drive. It's really essential for CITR, and we really appreciate it. And thank you for listening. Hey fam, I'm back! Hi! Okay, I hope you enjoyed all of that. And now it is time for my review of do you want what I have got? A Craigslist Cantera. So this was written by three people, one of which I interviewed last week. Uh, her name is Veda Hilly. She is a local, I mean by local, like a Vancouverite, um, I believe, at least Canadian <laughs> musician. <laughs> so uh, check out my interview with Veda and then come back to it maybe if you want to if you're listening to this as the podcast episode um maybe after listening to this go back go to the interview and listen to that or do the other way around i don't mind how you do it just listen to both of them because both of them are going to be really cool i mean one of them's already cool this one's also going to be cool anyways i'm speaking too much that's what i do that's li- this is literally a talk show okay <laughs> <laughs> so, a Craigslist Cantata. Lyrical genius. I loved it so much. This was wonderful. Hilarious. No wonder why it came back. This was performed originally back in... So, it was created in tw- 2009, performed as a full-length production in 2012, and then it was performed in November 2019, and then it came back because due to popular demand. And I am not surprised why it was popular. It, this was wonderful. It was so good. It was funny. It was engaging. And by engaging, I mean you just wanted to listen to the next song because everything just was so crazy. They are songs made out of real Craigslist ads that once existed back in 2009. For example, there was an ad about a bus boyfriend. Um, the ad is, bus boyfriend, I wanna smell you again. Okay, I'm never gonna sing again on the show. I'm sorry about that. The other one is a man wanting someone to sit in his bathtub full of noodles. Uh, another one is someone looking to give away her 300 stuffed penguins. Um, you know, just crazy stuff. <laughs> and so it was just, it was so funny. I loved it so much. Um, there was one, <laughs> the beginning of a song, it was a uh, children's sized guillotine. That got me. So what happened was... Um, this person, they were um, working on working with something and then they were like, I'm selling a children's size guillotine only used once. <laughs> like, what the heck happened there? <laughs> I don't understand how they found these ads, but I'm so happy they did. Um, okay, you also important to mention you can buy the album you can listen to all of the songs if you missed this that's fine you can still listen to all of the songs you can buy the album make sure you do it's wonderful i'm pretty sure i'm gonna buy it also we played three of the songs in the previous episode with the interview with veda healy so um if you don't have the money for the album but still want to listen to some of the songs check out our last episode for that um so the piano and the drums were uh live 
on stage with the actors so there wasn't really a stage in the interview Veda goes into it there were little different rooms that the actors were in they weren't able to see each other they apparently just you know did their cues depending on the music which is crazy to me because everything was so synchronized and everyone did such a good job they were literally just in different parts of the culture which is crazy to me um also I remember in the talk back uh the act one of the actors was on the talk back and she mentioned how they didn't know when they were on camera like when they were actually being live streamed or if they were just you know not being shown to the audience and so they always had to be on which is it's just crazy you know even if it's not your cue you still really need to be on so that you know you don't you don't get caught I don't know just chilling doing nothing on camera I guess but yeah I thought that was that was crazy that really good really great job from the actors um okay something else is I don't remember which song was this, but there was a cell block tango moment, which I really enjoyed. I love seeing little musical moments, um, you know, classical musical theater moments and stuff like this. It's it's so much fun. Uh, also, they did like little mini dances within their pods with like, you know, up and then the other one goes from down to up. And like, I don't know if that makes sense. But anyways, so... What I'm trying to say is Akira's Cantata was amazing. Anything that I could have dreamed of. It was wonderful. Lyrical genius. The songs were great. Um, the actors were great. They did a wonderful job. And I'm just so happy I got to witness that. Okay, so that brings me to the end of our show, to the end of our fun drive show. So folks, once again, I am asking for your donation. I feel like that um, that Bernie Sanders meme. So all of the, you know, the equipment, facts, and the, the keeping us local alternative and independent aside, why should you donate? Well, COVID hit us. COVID hit everyone. It has hit restaurants, cinemas, theaters, and it has also hit CITR. We have been closed since March and many of our programmers have been on hiatus. As a result, we are fortunate enough as the arts report to be able to produce from my bedroom, but um, doesn't work for everyone unfortunately we've lost all of our major recruitment opportunities and uh, we've had to cancel our regu- regular events including the shindig and degree navigator and all of the fun drive events for example we kick off fun drive usually 